Hello, and welcome to Season 6, Episode 4 of Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. Last week, we spoke about Jorge Balve, who was an Argentinian naval cadet who hosted some orgies that uh, helped bring down the government, which, uh, you know, all in a day's work. We are sadly hueless this week, but are happy this week to welcome Arthur Asaraf, who is a lecturer in history at the University of Cambridge, and who is going to tell us all about our character of the week. So who are we talking about this week, Arthur? Sure. So today we are going to talk about Mustafa Ben Ismail. Um, Mustafa was perhaps one of the ultimate ruthlessly ambitious twinks in world history. Uh, he was a man who essentially fucked the king, became the prime minister by the age of 25, and ruined his country um, so badly that it was invaded by France in 1881. So lots, lots to go ahead. I think it's, yeah, that's as evil of a twink as we've ever heard uh, profiled on this show, and we've heard some pretty evil ones profiled on this show. Some twinks are evil, but some twinks are evil with far greater consequences, and I think he's definitely one of them. <laughs> so he's not, um, he's not so famous in English, but um, he is an infamous figure in Tunisian history. So if you have any Tunisian friends, um, you could ask them, and there is a strong likelihood that they've heard of him. Um, he is I, probably universally reviled. I, I, I've never encountered a positive account of him, so it's not like particularly divisive. It seems to be a consensus that you know he was he was pretty bad. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get into it. I'm gonna tell you a bit about his life, and then maybe we'll have a conversation about you know how he fits into. North Africa at the time to the relationship between um, homosexuality and colonialism. Uh, but let's let's find out some more maybe about uh, Mustafa himself. Um, the first thing to know is that it's very difficult to know facts about him, despite the fact that he became prime minister, so he's not obscure. He didn't write anything himself, um, and there he was a very controversial figure at the time, so it's really difficult to, to know things for certain. The most obvious case of this is his origins. So we think that he was born around 1850 um, in Tunisia, which, by the way, I'm going to put you on the spot, Ben. Do you know where Tunisia is? I do know where Tunisia is. Um, Tunisia is uh, located on the coast of the Mediterranean in North Africa. It is between Algeria and Libya, I believe, um, and south of Sicily and Sardinia. You win. Um, you are doing very well in geography. That is exactly correct. So he's born um, around 1850 in Tunisia. And he certainly, what we know is that he's a kind of street child. He doesn't come from a prominent family. Um, one version I've read said that he started out as a beggar, actually, in the streets. Um, and, and then that he worked in a tavern, which would have been a very kind of disreputable place to, to work at the time because it served alcohol. Um, some people said that he worked in an Italian barbershop and that this is why he hated Italians his whole life. This will be relevant later on. <laughs> oh boy. That is one bad haircut really will turn you against a whole people. Yeah. Or maybe it's the beard. I don't know. Like many questions are raised by this account. 
Another version um, said that he was a stable boy and then that he became, and I quote, the plaything of the Bay's guards. Now the Bay is the ruler of Tunis, so the equivalent um, of the king at the time. This is really interesting uh, because this will, I think, remind some of our listeners about um, the story of James the first and sixth of Scotland and England and some of his favorites. One of them, I believe, was actually a stable boy who also ended up uh, becoming a, a duke of something and also with fairly disastrous consequences. So um, it truly does seem that evil twink energy is a world historical force. It's, it's I'm glad you mentioned that because there are a lot of commonalities um, that we'll encounter between Mustafa bin Ismail and other kind of uh, lovers of monarchs that appear in very different contexts in different historical periods. The common thread being this is a monarchical system, there's a ruler, the ruler has a whole court and court around him, and this is a culture in which the ruler sometimes has um, male lovers and then bestows favors on them. But we're going to get to that in a second. One particularly plausible version of his origins is that he, he started out as um, the, the servant of a scribe, a sort of minor, minor civil servant, and that then um, that was how he kind of later rose. There are two things that are absolutely certain. Uh, the first is that he really came from nowhere. He didn't have an important family. Um, in fact, Mustafa bin Ismail was certainly not his original name. We know this for sure. It was very common for people to change names and to get given new names. And his Mustafa was probably his, his name, but Ben Ismail, so, which means son of Ismail was a later name that was given to kind of give him an origin that he did not have. So we don't, we know that he was very obscure and very poor. And we also know that he was, and I quote, uncommonly beautiful. He was also known in one account as the Adonis of La Goulette. La Goulette is the harbor area in Tunis, known as Halk al-Wadi in um, Arabic. And the good thing about Mustafa bin Ismail is that we have some pics. The pics are from a bit uh, later, but the pics don't lie. And, you know, I get it. Like, he was he was very beautiful. So the sources do not seem to be lying us lying to us about, um, about that. Beautiful enough to uh, ruin a whole country over? Or what do you think? We're gonna we're gonna find out. I mean, I guess, you know, it's a question of judgment. And also, he was probably his most damaging um, in the twink phase before the mustache came in. So all the pictures of him with like a very fulsome and I would say attractive mustache, but he was at his most lethal before the mustache because by the standards of the time, that was when he would have been considered the hottest is in, is in the truly kind of uh, twinkish phase. And it is in that phase as a teenager that he um, enters in a relationship with uh, the ruler of Tunisia, uh, Muhammad al-Sadiq, who is usually known as Sadiq Bey. Uh, why is he known as the Bey? Tunisia uh, at the time is, is an independent kingdom. It's known as a regency. Technically speaking, it's under the sovereignty of the Ottoman Sultan. And we might come back to this later. So instead of having a Sultan, we have a Bey, which is not spelled B-A-E. Um, it's more spelled like the beginning of Beyonce. Uh, and we'll get back to, to the politics of why the Bay is important or not. But he is the sort of king of, of Tunisia for all intents and purposes, if we're very, very sort of uh, simplistic about this. And he is much older than Mustafa. So he's about 40 years older because we know that he was born in 1813. 
And um, he's been on the throne since 1859, and it's likely that um, Mustafa encounters him probably at some point in the late 1860s, although we don't know exactly when this starts. So there's a big age gap uh, between the two, which is perhaps not that shocking uh, to those familiar with uh, gays in history. And it is indeed um, very classic in the culture at the time in, in North Africa and in the Arab world uh, more broadly. Um, the main form of same sexual interaction is uh, men who love boys. Um, and of course, this does not mean that people were gay by uh, the standards that we understand them, um, which is a recurring theme of the show. That is a recurring theme of the show. Um, I also wanted to pause here for a minute um, and check in about what we mean when we say men who have sex with boys and to talk a little bit about how we maybe understand the ethics um, of that practice at that time. And this is also something that's come up, I think, um, again and again on, on the show. And I'd, I'd like to hear your perspective on it as we discuss this particular historical time and, and place. It is indeed very tricky. So there was no notion at the time of um, age of consent. The, um, the people described as most attractive generally in the sources at the time were sort of teenagers. They were not children. Um, children, you know, usually that's, that's more controversial. Um, so they were teenagers and, and, and they're sort of like, something around the ages from 13 to 20, but it's primarily defined not by age, but by physical characteristics, right? By um, the appearance of sort of a beginning of hair uh, on the face, but not too much because then they look too much like men. It is worth saying that it is, it is disputed to what extent this attraction translated into sex. So what is uncontroversial is that the mainstream culture at the time saw it as normal for older men to be attracted and to flirt with um, teenage boys. And that's, I mean, that's why I wanted to ask you the question, uh, just because it's important, I think, when we talk about a historical practice like this to talk about it situated in its time and place, to situate it in what ideas about and the experiences of childhood and adulthood were in this time and place, um, and to just do that in a in a rigorous and ethical way without um, justifying uh, without justifying horrors. Um, and so that that was the that was the purpose of that question. I, I think that's a very important question, and it's also worth saying perhaps that this was a society more broadly where there was not really any notion of. Um, consensual sexual relationships or um, equal partnerships. Um, so relationship between men and boys are one element of uh, relationship culture, which by our standards is, is very, very, you know, fraught and, and, and uh, difficult to assess. Yeah, and lest anyone um, try to use that or or get the idea that this has something um, that this has something specifically to do uh, with um, Islam or with race, 
um, that reminds me actually a great deal of um, sexual cultures to be found in times and places that uh, white Westerners have found enormously important and influential for them, right? That concept of um, that sort of set of concepts around sex um, in the classical period then becomes unbelievably influential, as you know, for uh, white gay men in the in the late 19th and early 20th century as they're kind of forming their identities. So this is definitely something that's circulating um, in a lot of times and in a lot of times and places. In fact, just we might be getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but there is there was some interesting theories at the time written um, by some European observers of uh, North African society that connected the two. So they connected sort of classical Greek um, practices and contemporary uh, North African ones. And they assumed that it had something to do with the climate, that something about the Mediterranean climate just inherently made kind of people behave sexually uh, in this way. This uh, is the satiric zone, right? Exactly. This is, and this we'll is get to zone. this. We'll get to this later, but it is, I just want to drop one little tidbit and you can go back to telling the story, but that uh, when Italy reunified, it was decided that they could not ban sodomy in Italy because Sicily was just too incorrigibly sodomitical. Those Sicilians, I mean, they, they, there are a lot of them in Tunisia, so it's very, it's very connected. One way to think through this, I mean, very, very tricky question of, um, men who love boys is maybe to think in this case about the individual uh, dynamic between, between these two people. And one thing that's intriguing about Sadat Bey, so the, the, the older man in this relationship, is that from what we know, he does seem to have been more exclusively disposed towards um, men and not women, which is unusual by the standards of the time. Because usually, um, the expectation would have been for adult men to have um, several wives and to have uh, many children, and then maybe also to have um, concubines or slaves of both genders on the side um, and or lovers of various sorts. The interesting thing about Sadope is that he never had any children. Um, he had one wife, uh, Lalla Kamarbeya, who tradition at least remembers as famously unfucked because um, then after he died, she remarried somebody else and she was still considered sort of to have been uh, unconsummated. There was a novel about this by uh, Nizar Ben Saad um, about sort of that looks at these events from her perspective. It, it, it's not impossible that, that he had sexual relationships with women, but it's, it's interesting that this was, at the time people thought that he did not. Um, and everyone agrees that he was very fond of, of pretty boys. In fact, one version says that um, his prime minister at the time, who was a man named Mustafa Khaznadar, so not Mustafa bin Ismail, another Mustafa, he was a very powerful man, that this man, the prime minister, uh, found the young Mustafa, who was very beautiful, and offered him to the bay in order to keep the Bey distracted from politics. So this was his way of like keeping him busy and keeping him um, uh, out of sort of meddling too much in government. And this wasn't kind of intentional. One thing that is certain from the reports that we have is that the Bey was absolutely obsessed with Mustafa. Um, in the words of the French writer uh, Guy de Maupassant, um, who was in Tunisia in 1881, 
The Bay, similar to old bachelors who only want to be served by pretty maids, made a prime minister of a little, so little employee of the palace, seduced by his grace and pretty face. Another person noted at the time that if he loses his favorite, that's often the word that people use, favorite, if he loses his favorite from sight, the bay is like a body with no Oh, that's almost sweet. That almost makes me um, sympathize with the bay a little bit. Um, this is also a pattern uh, that might be familiar to, to people who are familiar with our episode in Frederick Great, um, who never made any of his favorites prime minister to quite this degree, but did certainly dote on them. Um, and uh, I mean, do, do you think that the Bay is someone who maybe challenges our academic desire to um, define these kinds of sexual practices as separate from object choice? I mean, is he someone who seems to have had a primarily kind of homosexual and homoromantic um, object choice? Or is that just not something that we can say? It's such an interesting question. I think that the honest answer is we cannot say. The, the, the sources I've encountered, there's nothing written uh, from Sadok Bey himself. Um, there's nothing written by Mustafa bin Ismail himself, who probably had a very limited education. It's not clear that he could read or write, or maybe if he did, it was limited. So it's difficult to know what they made of it from their own perspective. Um, and it's interesting as well that many historians, this is a very famous period that is very well studied in Tunisian history. And the, the politics of it are very well studied. And the intimate politics of it are obviously so important because then as we, we're gonna see Mustafa becomes prime minister, there's very little description as to what this relationship actually involved. Most of it is a bunch of euphemisms. They say, you know, his favorite, uh, one, one account that I, it's a very like mainstream history by a collective of Tunisian historians, his particular friend. <laughs> I think that's, I have a lesbian cousin. I think that's still how my grandmother refers to her girlfriend when just, she comes they over. They were just really it's good her, friends. They were just really, you know, such good friends that they moved together to live in Washington, D.C. in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, but, you know. Yeah, so I, I don't know really how to understand um, what what Sadok Bey made of this and you know whether th there's a separate question as to whether he is a bad gay in, in a way if we want to go down that route you know whether the ruler might be partly the the culprit here so separately from from Mustafa who also engaged in this but obviously from a position of a lot less power uh especially initially um and one, one of the things that these kinds of euphemisms make really difficult to figure out um, is, you know, one of the kind of essential questions of, of any historical inquiry, which is, well, did, did they fuck? You know, like, was there, uh, a, what sexual element was there in this? Um, and this is, this is very difficult um, to know. Um, in particular, because there was a sort of uh, expectation at the time, and we might come back to this, that yes, men might fall in love with boys and write poems, but they wouldn't necessarily consummate these relationships. However, in this case, it is worth knowing that people at the time, outside observers, certainly thought that they were having um, sexual relations and the descriptions were extremely graphic. Um, there's one uh, French account from the time 
um, by Edouard Drummond, who is uh, anti-notorious anti-Semite um, and not the most reliable uh, person. But the, the story that he tells is that when the telegraph was first um, installed in Tunis, it, it was an experiment to connect between two of the Bay's palaces. And he says that the first telegraphic message that was ever sent in Tunisia said, please bring, bring back the underwear that the Bay left on Ismail's bed. <gasps> Shock horror. Yeah, so that would as that. A, as someone who lives for drama, I am living for that. It's like the first, is it first? Sixth? I mean, it's something along those lines. It suggests that like the first like electronic message ever sent in Tunisia was kind of a sext or something. Um, Not even a sext, like all, a morning after like sext of shame. Which is that worse? Is it worse than like, yeah, it's probably worse if you think about it. It's like not even like anticipation. It's like, there's also um, some suggestions that the Mustafa was involved in uh, supplying the Bay with other boys. Uh, there was a diplomatic scandal that erupted in 1874 when a Spanish boy was abducted. Um, so the European consuls, and particularly the Spanish consul, uh, got involved. And um, it was alleged that, that Mustafa had supplied this boy for uh, what they called the Bay's harem. I mean, strictly speaking, not a harem because a harem is made of women, but they like to use this word to talk about the Bay's sort of posse of uh, lovers. Um, one aspect that's quite intriguing and, and perhaps difficult for us to understand about the relationship is that the, the Bey um, married Mustafa off to his adoptive daughter. So he had no biological children of his own, um, but he, he adopted two children. Um, um, and the daughter, Jnaina, uh, was married off to Mustafa ben Ismail. And would this have been a uh, social situation in which marrying off the Bey's relative to this kind of street kid uh, would have been seen as really kind of potentially damaging to the legitimacy of the monarchy? I mean, is this a monarchy that understands itself as a kind of blood monarchy? Not exactly. It doesn't have the same kind of standards of purity of blood um, as European monarchy does. It is a dynasty. So um, the Husseinids who are established in the 18th century uh, are the same family, and that's how the rule is transmitted. But there's no concept of purity of blood. I mean, this is a society um, where it's very common for um, men to have concubines until the 1840s when slavery is abolished in Tunisia, incidentally, before the United States, which Tunisians at the time and now love to remind Americans, until slavery is abolished, it's very common um, for uh, men of the upper classes and of the dynasty to have slaves and to have sexual relations with them. No, there's no, but there is, um, it gives Mustafa a very unusual power base. Most people who are powerful in Tunis at the time are either from local uh, rich and old families known as Baldi, who are local to Tunisia, or they are formerly enslaved men uh, known as Mamluk, who came um, through the Ottoman Empire and who are educated to be sort of very elite slaves and who are the most important civil servants 
And he is neither of those things. He's just a kid of the streets who come nowhere. And so to be there marrying um, the Bay's adoptive uh, daughter is connected to all sorts of status. The Bay also gives him a lot of money. He gives him a lot of different estates, a lot of different property. By one account, he ends up accumulating no less than 24 estates in Tunisia and a sort of property portfolio in Europe, um, as well as a lot of jewels. He was a big fan of the Bay's um, jewels. So he certainly sort of goes from nowhere to being extremely prominent and rich. And that causes a lot of anxiety. And that's also why I think so many of the accounts about him, whether from um, other Tunisian men in Arabic or from European consuls in French or in Italian or in other languages, they're all negative. You see, there's, there's the, nobody seems to like him, in part because he seems like a very isolated person. Apart from his relationship with the Bay, it is through this relationship that he rises to power in a really dramatic fashion. Uh, first, he, become, uh, he becomes the general of the Bay's guard, so the soldiers um, in charge of protecting the Bay. Then he becomes the administrator of the region of the Capon, which is the cape just east of Tunis that kind of points out towards Sicily if you look on a map. What that means is not really that he's running the region in practice, but it means that he gets all the tax revenue. So he becomes very wealthy through this. Then he becomes the minister of Navy. So he's in charge of running the country's Navy and the country's justice system. And finally, at the age of 25, and I think this is worth repeating, 25, he is made Grand Vizier or Prime Minister. So at the age of 25, he is made Prime Minister after being um, Minister of Justice and running the Navy. And this is someone who is has such an obscure and poor birth that we can't even say exactly when it took place and may not even be able to read and write. Exactly. And that is some extremely, extremely, extremely good looks. It's like, it's like a lot of people at the time said it was like, it's like magic or witchcraft or that the Bay was senile. He was like, oh, this poor old doddering fool. He had no idea what was going on. He was kind of under the spell of this like mysteriously bewitching Mustafa. But I mean, it does raise some questions. Like what was he doing? What was his secret? Because the consensus is that he was absolutely terrible at administration. Um, <laughs> There's a surprise. One, uh, one major history written by Tunisian historians described this as, and I quote, a rapid ascension that no respectable quality explains nor justifies. This suggests that there might have been some disreputable qualities involved in his rise, but they don't say what those are. Uh, it does make you wonder what he was doing. Um, he really is this kind of like mysteriously demonic young man. Um, He's described as very inconsistent, as very vain, and especially corrupt. Um, there's truly no limits in him trying to get more money, um, which I suppose if you think of his humble origins makes sense. I mean, he came out of nothing. Maybe he, you know, really wanted to have all of the kind of security and wealth in, in the world. 
He's so corrupt that um, in 1879, this leads to a major crisis. Um, one of his friends was under investigation from justice and he kind of like tries to get the, the, the court case stopped. Uh, and so the, the ulama, that is the scholars of Islamic law uh, at the main university, the Zaytuna Mosque, so who are the people in charge of issuing legal judgments, revolt against the monarchy because they're like, it is not possible for you know, our sort of due process of Islamic law to be interrupted just because this man thinks that he can save his friends. So maybe this is kind of a, uh, something we could admire, some kind of, uh, you know, inner system abolition, uh, but I guess it's only being done for his friends, so it's more corruption than abolition. Yeah, I think if you think of um, most uh, sort of Islamic societies before colonial rule, um, there is a kind of balance of power. Um, there is a system of checks and balances. It's not completely tyrannical. And the way in which that works is that the ulama, who are the interpreters of the law, are there to make sure that the sovereign doesn't kind of completely go uh, berserk and just start doing completely random things. So usually, though they might seem to us to be conservative, um, when the ulama act up, that's not a very good sign. It's a sign, it's a sign that the sultan or whoever it is in this case the bay might be sort of spiraling out of control. But that is nothing compared to the big political crisis that happened a few years later. Um, so for this one, we have to zoom out a bit um, to look at Tunisia um, in, and its neighbors. Um, and Tunisia at this point is a small country that is stuck between a lot of very big powers. Um, it's only about 2 million inhabitants. And so there's the Ottoman Empire, there's the British who are just opposite in Malta, uh, the Italians who have just unified and who really want um, me, and of course the French uh, who have been in Algeria since 1830 um, and who play a really important role already in Tunisia in this period. So when uh, Mustafa is prime minister, they already run the telegraph system, most of the public works, the railways, and they're sort of getting increasing, um, increasingly important. And Tunisia is stuck in this bind where uh, since the, the, the earlier 19th century, since the 1840s, um, Tunisian rulers have been implementing a number of reforms to try and get stronger, uh, but often these reforms end up making them more in debt to European banks. And then this leads to more European encroachment or powers. And this has been going on for a number of years and it's getting worse. By this point, Europeans already have control over Tunisian finances. Um, and if you read most histories of the 19th century Middle East and North Africa, um, there is a kind of hero in this story of, you know, reform, bankruptcy, um, and invasion. And this hero is Mustafa Ben Ismail's main nemesis, uh, a man named Khayr al-Din. And Khayr al-Din is usually in most histories portrayed as the good guy because um, he's a very sort of elite uh, Mamluk, so he's a formerly enslaved man. Little historians love him because he writes a really beautiful treatise of political philosophy that defends uh, constitutional rule from an Islamic perspective, uh, which is usually known in English as the shortest path. And in the 1970s, he is the prime minister of Tunisia, 
And he's, he's not corrupt. Budget is running well. Everything is going good. Maybe if Khairuddin had stayed in power, Tunisia would have progressed towards a beautiful liberal democracy flourishing. This is often the kind of narrative that we're given. It is this upstanding intellectual, and for all we know, heterosexual hero. I've never read anything suggesting that Khairuddin um, had anything else than, than heterosexual relations with his wives. It is this man that Mustafa manages to evict in 1877. And the fun thing about this is that Khairuddin, so Mustafa's enemy, uh, wrote his own memoir, and he was very good at self-promotion. And he wrote of Mustafa as, quote, as bad and ignorant as, bad and ignorant as he was ambitious and corrupt. So obviously, uh, Khairuddin, trying to be the good guy, um, sees Mustafa as an obstacle towards uh, the reform of the kingdom. He complains about him to the Bey, and this backfires. So the Bey, rather than distance himself from his lover, Mustafa fires Khairuddin and makes Mustafa prime minister uh, in 1878. So what are the stakes of the fight between Heredin and Mustafa? Like, why does Mustafa set his sights on him? Is it a, is it a jealousy thing? Is it an ambition thing? Is there, some, is there something substantive? We don't have Mustafa's perspective on this. We only have Heredin's. Uh, Heredin seems to suggest that it's just because Mustafa is corrupt and wants a lot of money, and Heredin's kind of rigorous rule is preventing him from doing this. Mustafa probably saw him as an obstacle towards gaining more power, but... It's not really clear. We only sort of see him appear as this kind of money goblin that just constantly wants to, you know, absorb more of the Bay's uh, wealth and jewels. What is certain uh, is that once he is um, prime minister, Mustafa is accused of opening the door wide open for further French influence. Um, he travels to France. Um, he kind of really enjoys going there um, and looking very luxurious. And the French cons consul essentially ends up kind of exerting more and more influence in Tunisia. Except that the problem with Mustafa is that he's also very fickle. And so at one point um, in, in the very end of 1880, he switches to the French's big rival, the Italians. And he's like, actually, I don't like the French anymore. They're preventing me from doing the things that I want. Goes to the Italians, who apparently he hated because if you remember, he used to work in an Italian barbershop. And then uh, the French are like, okay, this is too much. This is getting too dangerous. And in the spring of 1881, they invade Tunisia which loses its independence until 1956. And Mustafa is there at the signature of the treaty and he makes the Bey do it. Um, basically, he is the kind of main intermediary between the Bey and anybody else. And so the French general who has marched all the way to Tunis from Algeria says, you have to sign this treaty. Um, and Mustafa is like, okay, I guess, I guess you have to do it. So he is the sort of final straw that makes colonialism possible in Tunisia. Huh. And does this contribute to, um, as one might expect it to, um, like, is there an association between like the penetration of the male body and the penetration of the state by this foreign force like is there a like that that he's basically too too weak or too unmanly to defend the nation you know it's funny because i thought that i would find more things like that and they might exist i've seen a few fun caricatures 
But the character, I suppose the caricatures don't make it clear who is penetrating whom between Mustafa and Sarope. So it's not entirely clear. Uh, this sort of metaphor of foreign penetration is, is very clear in caricatures of Tunisia as a woman, for instance, but it's not very clear in the relationship between uh, the, the Bey and his favorite, who is the most responsible for this disastrous state of affairs. People tend to blame um, Mustafa because the Bey is considered to be old and, and kind of senile. Um, but no, I've never found that specific uh, connection. Um, so you might want to know what happens to Mustafa after um, the, the signature of the, the Protectorate Treaty. Um, it's quite a short story because he doesn't live for very long after that. He's initially fine. Um, he goes on tour to Paris a few months after Tunisia gets invaded. He's wined and dined. He's given a bunch of prizes, the Légion d'honneur, so a big kind of formal award by the French state. He's very elegant, the Parisian newspapers tell us. He's dressed in a European style. Uh, but he has very few friends. Um, so Sadok Bey, who is quite old, dies the next year in 1882. And after that, he finds himself very isolated because he's lost the kind of relationship with the main patron in his life. He gets in trouble with uh, Sadok Bey's successor, Ali, who is um, Sadok Bey's nephew. Uh, he moves to Paris for a while. Apparently he marries a cabaret artist named Anna. So he definitely had um, a number of relationships uh, with women. Uh, Anna herself seems to have been a fun character. She organized a lot of orgies in Paris. That, I mean, again, not to apply modern standards of homosexuality to the past, but come on, if you are a gay guy who wants a wife, you pick a cabaret singer who has fun orgies. This is true. I mean, they had kids, so, you know, they probably just had a lot of fun. That's what it sounds like if we're being, you know, generous here. Um, but then, then he runs away to um, Istanbul and he's... He's very poor, he's very destitute at this point. He's lost most of the kind of wealth that he's acquired. And he dies in 1887 in Istanbul, which is very young. He's probably about 37 years old. Some people say 40, but we don't know his exact birthday, but it's, it's in some ways it's a very tragic um, kind of death. I mean, depending on how you feel about the character, I suppose. Um, but so that's how he ends. So he doesn't last for very long after being uh, removed from his position as prime minister and after the French kind of, once the French actually run Tunisia, they find him inconvenient because he's too messy. They're, they only find him convenient in the run-up because he's contributing to making the place more chaotic, which is to their benefit. Um, so one question we might wanna think about is whether we want to call um, Mustafa Ben Ismail gay. And I don't know if you have initial thoughts about this. I mean, um, what we always say on the show uh, is that gay as we define it um, is um, not a question of is the person gay, but because often, as in this case, it's just because of either a lack of sources that can prove certain things took place. Um, or because of a really different kind of cultural or social system or moment, uh, kind of nonsensical to try to make an identity claim. Uh, instead, for us, the question is always, does it teach us something 
to think about this person as being gay? Like, does does that give us something now as a kind of history of the present? And in that second definition, I would say, yes, absolutely. In the same way that we've profiled people like James the First and Sixth on the show of Scotland, you know, and 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 other other times and places. But uh, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, no, I completely agree. This is a man who owed his entire sort of career and wealth and status to an intimate relationship with another more powerful man. That is beyond controversy. Um, how exactly they conceived of this relationship, we don't know, which is very common. More broadly, um, this is, a, this is a, a, a time and a place where there is no concept of homosexuality as a separate identity, which is also very common if you look um, in, in most places in history. Um, there's a really good book by Khaled al-Ruwayhib called Before Homosexuality in the Arab World, uh, which kind of really effectively describes this. This is a society where um, the attraction of men to boys is very widespread in all classes, so it's not just an elite pursuit, but it's particularly visible in uh, elite circles because they write a lot of poetry about boys. And we know that this was considered distinctive because we also know that North African travelers, when they went to Europe, found Europeans strange. So there's one Moroccan ambassador, Mohammed Safar, who goes to France in 1845, so a bit before um, Mustafa was born. And he writes, flirtation, romance, and courtship for them, meaning the French, take place only with women, for they are not inclined to boys or young men. And he's like, oh, this is a fun, weird thing about France, is that they don't flirt with boys. Isn't that weird? Isn't this a fun thing about this place? Um, but what what Arwaihib says is that in, in elite culture, there is a big difference between uh, courting boys, which is fine. So you're expected to kind of flirt and desire boys and go after them and actually having sexual relationships with them, which is in terms of um, the norms of Islamic law, bad, which does not mean that people didn't do it, but it was considered to be, to be a bad thing. Um, adolescent youths who were pursued were themselves expected to be attracted to women. So it's not actually weird for Mustafa to marry Jnaina or to have um, other wives and to have female lovers while he's in this relationship with Sadiq Bey. That's quite normal. And it is quite normal for the attraction of older men to younger boys to result in favors and in patronage. Um, and some families kind of did this on purpose. If they had very pretty boys, they would sort of push them out to flirt um, and to get things for men, but they were expected to play hard to get, right? You don't want to put out because otherwise that's bad. Right, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, that's actually not so different from, from certain kinds of heterosexual courtship at the time across class. Yeah, so what Arwaihib says, which is a sort of interesting analogy to think about, he says, well, you know, look at sort of uh, Europe and sort of medieval Europe, or early modern Europe, and obviously there's there's so much poetry about um, courting beautiful damsels and, and unrequited love and chivalrous love, but but that is that does not mean that they were then going to um, have sexual relationships outside of marriage in this imaginary. That doesn't mean that people didn't do it, but the sort of ideal was that you would sort of devote yourself to this love, um, but that it remained chaste. Um, and he says that it was it was similar um, 
as it applied to, to um, boys in uh, the Arab world just before this period. This is the period that we're talking about today is a period where because of colonialism and a number of reforms within the Arab world, a lot of this is kind of collapsing. One of the interesting things is that at this time, at the time when Mustafa was, was alive, there was no criminalization of homosexual behavior uh, per se in Tunisia. Um, the, the penal code that gets established by Sadiq Bey, which is a new invention in 1861, does not mention anything to do with fornication or um, sodomy. There will be a penal code later under the French that is introduced in 1913 that does that. But this time, actually, there's no specific mention of this. Uh, and there's a really interesting book by the historian uh, Abdel Hamid Largesh, which he looks at the police reports in 1860s Tunis, and he shows that there are cases of um, arrests involving um, sex between men, but they're, they're only cases about um, non-consensual sex involving boys. So they're basically um, boys getting raped and then their families complaining. Um, they're not, there's no other configuration that occurs uh, in those cases. So the, the issue seems to be more about um, than it is per se about um, two, two men having sex. Um, huh, that's that's really interesting and 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 I mean does that what's interesting to me is that that maybe conflicts with what you said earlier about this being a society where there's not really a concept of sexual consent per se is the how is the crime they're conceived of is it conceived of as a crime against the the boy is it conceived of as a crime against the family there, so uh, perhaps I spoke too fast there is a concept of consent it just depends who is doing it so you know, if it's if it's if the man has what is considered to be a lawful relationship with the person involved, that is, for instance, his wife, um, or if we're moving back a bit forward, his slave, there is no notion of consent. But that does not mean that men are sort of allowed to just go around raping everybody, and there is a concept of. Um, of rape in that concept. I guess perhaps rather than saying that there's no concept of consent, there's 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 little concept of a sort of um, equal sexual relationship. Um, and so sex is embedded within the power dynamics of an extremely unequal society in which nobody has the same status. You don't have the same status if you're a Muslim or a non-Muslim, such as a Jew, which we're um, there were many in Tunisia at the time. You don't have the same status if um, you are from the city or from the countryside, if you're from an aristocratic family or not. You know, nobody is the same. And so sex always fits into those um, dynamics. So I suppose if we look at him in the context of his time, um, Mustafa bin Ismail is definitely not unusual in the sense that uh, Many rulers had male favorites, and many men, more widely throughout society, um, showered favors upon um, younger men or boys. But he is unusual in just how far he went, you know, rising literally from the streets to prime minister is kind of insane. And, and destroying actually, an entire country in the process. 
I mean, let's be fair, he wasn't the only person involved in that. And by the time he became prime minister, Tunisia was in dire straits. And this would probably have happened in some way or another. But he definitely accelerates it. He definitely makes it a lot faster. And it, the country looks a lot weaker internationally and is considerably poorer by the time the French invade because of him. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to the show. A special shout out to those of you who support us every month on Patreon. Uh, that really does help us um, make the show. It helps us um, take the time that we need to do it. Um, and uh, it's really something that we enormously appreciate. If uh, you are interested in uh, joining our Patreon, uh, you can find information about that at uh, badgazepod.com. Um, there is no special podcast content for Patreon listeners. Um, nothing is locked behind paywalls. Um, we have some small rewards, but really it's just about uh, you supporting something that's important or interesting to you. And um, if that's something that you're able to do, that you're interested in doing, we really, really do appreciate it. Another great way you can help support the show is to check out our book, which we published last year, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. It's out now in hardback from Verso and will be coming out soon in paperback if, um, if you prepare paperback. And it covers a whole series of evil and complicated LGBTQ people from history and the way that their relationships affected and were affected by colonialism. Yeah, it's, um, if I say so myself, a fun read. Um, and we really tried to bring the stories together um, into this coherent narrative. Um, it's been a real joy to get to tour it. And uh, if you're interested in the book, you can find out information on the book and on upcoming events that we're doing to support the book at badgazepod.com slash book. And now, on with the show. Thank you so much, Arthur, uh, for telling that story, for telling it so well, and for introducing uh, me and, and I think a lot of our listeners to this fascinating character. Um, I guess the first question that I want to ask you has to do with the way that this story um, intersects a bit with the kind of history of the relationship between colonialism and the evolution of homosexual identities as we understand them. Um, and that's a story that we've talked about a lot on the show. Um, and that's something that we have tended on the show um, to look at from the European side, not saying that Europeans were right to do it, but we've been kind of looking at how that process works internally in Europe. Um, and how do you think, or do you think, um, this story can contribute uh, an important, um, I don't know if I want to say an important perspective, but important um, alternatives or additions to, to, that, to that story? It's a really interesting and I would say quite complex question because you're right, there is a whole kind of discussion about this which you know, includes um, North Africa. So the amount of, for instance, sexual tourism that then happens under colonialism, under the French, the extent to which Europeans see North Africa as a kind of sexual playground um, for various kind of Orientalist fantasies, what Tunisia uh, is going to become shortly after uh, 
um, Mustafa dies. And this goes on and well into the 20th century. I mean, this is there's there's people um, there's kind of Western white Western queers living in Tunis um, well into the 20th century as thinking of it as this kind of like paradise of of sexual freedom and, and liberation. And this also goes back to that satiric zone thing that you we were talking about a bit earlier, right? Oh, yeah. And it goes on now. I mean, French porn companies are obsessed with North African men. And there's one in particular, because, you know, so many of the films were filmed in Tunisia. Um, and, you know, there's this whole fantasy of like the harem and like these sort of nice white French tourists, you know, getting sort of perverted uh, by these Tunisian men. Um, so this, this, this lives on. The thing is, what we're dealing with here is slightly different. Um, this is not the same story because in some ways, this is not a story about a sort of, to use blunt terms, sexual encounter, right? Mustafa is not having relationships with European men. He is not, uh, to use a, a much more famous kind of world historical figure, he's not La Malinche. So the, the, the Mexican woman, the indigenous Maya woman, who, when the Spanish conquistadors and Cortes arrives, she sort of sexually collaborates with the Spanish, acts as the interpreter and makes the conquest of Mexico possible. He's not really that. He's not accused of having had sex with French men. He is accused of facilitating French influence, but the primary problem here is an internal power dynamic within Tunisian society. So within this monarchical power in Tunisia and this court, and that's what makes his rise possible. So here we see perhaps a different story, which is a story about sort of patriarchal dynastic cultures, which occur in a number of places um, in the world, in East Asia, in Europe, um, in the early modern period in particular, but also at different times. And, and really in these, we, we find vastly power differential relationships. And because this is a system that values individual power in the monarchy, um, it's very unstable and produces individual favor. So there's one historian, uh, Tunisian historian, Jocelyne Berlia, who's written a book called uh, Empire of Passions, L'Empire des Passions. She tries to look at it from a very general perspective across the Muslim world, across centuries, which maybe is a bit um, wide ranging, but, she says that you know a lot of these these um, sort of uh, homosexual relationships that rulers have there are many periods in Islamic history. They raise a problem not just we might be tempted to pluck them out as being a problem about homosexual behavior and and sort of being gay, which is what we're doing on this podcast. She places it as a much wider political problem in a culture which is very concerned about monarchs and sultans um, having no checks and acting in completely unpredictable ways and being governed by their passions. So in a way, Mustafa is just kind of an example of what happens when the Bey can do whatever he wants and that is open to abuse. And maybe the fact that this is between two men is not the most significant aspect. However, huh. 
I don't know how you feel about this. Does that does that kind of ring true to you or maybe not? It does. No, it does. And it actually, what's funny is that it really reminds me of some of the stories that we've told about these European monarchs. And I keep going back to Frederick and James because they're the two that I can think of off the top of my head that we've discussed who had these favorites and where that was commented on. Um, and it really does seem to depend on the sex gender system of the time and place we're talking about, whether the object choice is part of the problem or not. Um, I'll give you another example. In the classical uh, era, um, there's this moment where uh, Caesar is made fun of because apparently he was bottoming for one of his um, his kind of favorites. And that was the big transgression, right? Um, and so it, I think it's what, what's really instructive to me is if we think about homosexuality as something that is new and contingent, even if homosexual behavior, same-sex erotic and romantic behavior isn't new or contingent, but the the kind of making the ident object choice into an identity really is new and contingent, then stories like this from these different times and places can all contribute to a breadth of understanding of what that contingency looks like. And at the same time, some of the kinds of stereotypes or tropes or concepts that get built into that identity, we are going to recognize in these different times and places because they are among the things that were kind of congealed into this one thing. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. I think that's really, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's to, maybe to backtrack a bit, it's certainly true that French observers at the time first don't see this relationship between Sadok Bey and Mustafa Ben Ismail as a problem because they assume it, they just assume that uh, North Africans are inherently like this. So they don't see it as a problem because they're like, well, of course they're, they're sort of corrupt, they're perverted, they're bizarre. And so they assume that this is a further sign of weakness of Tunisia, which is why in, in fact it needs to be colonized and it needs to be put under a protectorate because it can't rule itself. Look at the ruler at the top of it, this can't possibly work. Um, but in a way that, you know, it, that's not very helpful, uh, not just because of course it's wrong, but also because it makes it very difficult to understand how this actually worked. I mean, how did Mustafa become prime minister? We don't really know. And assuming that this was just a kind of perennial feature of these societies um, and that Sadat Bey was just kind of insane, seems to leave out the kind of, the real power game that must have taken place. And he, he must have somehow been good at getting what he wanted. Um, which to me, we kind of, we, we often lose track of the individuals in these stories um, by making them kind of symbols for a particular culture at a particular time. So we'll be like, oh, well, you know, this case shows that this is how, you know, homosexuality worked in the Arab world in the 19th century. No, it does not. Um, it suggests certain things, but it's also a story between two very particular men. Right. It's a, and it's a story between two particular men that takes place in a particular time and place. Um, and also, you know, Tunisia is not Syria and the late 19th century is not the 16th century is not the 14th century. Right. Like these are all I think especially when we talk about and this is one of the one of the greatest um, I think intellectual and ethical and political failures of Western homosexuality as an identity and political project. Um, 
is to collapse everything that is not Western modernity into a kind of temporally flat place where everything was simpler, right? This is the famous kind of Foucault joke, tomorrow sex will be good again. Everything is simpler. Everything is more is 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 more um, free and liberated. And then that's kind of mirror image of this homophobic and racist imperial construction of everything that is not Western civilization as being perverted and backwards and and in need of kind of moral reform. And it that depiction um, a contributes to a lot of really primitivist um, ideation and and racist ideation that I think inhibits, um, the potential for solidarity in some of some of these homosexual emancipation movements, uh, but it also uh, in the here and now, um, and I think that's more important than its effect on on the intellectual conversation we're having now. But I think it often, sometimes, still um, gets in the way of people thinking about or understanding different times and places as being different times and places, right? Like, you know, Syria in fourteen hundred and. Um, and Tunisia in in the late 19th century are assumed to be more similar than I think a lot of people in the West with even a casual knowledge of history would assume England in 1400 and Italy in the late um, 19th century to be. Absolutely. And in this case, if we're thinking about the 1870s, 1880s, I mean, a lot of the figures that you're familiar with, you know, that listeners are familiar with from other episodes, inhabit the same world as Mustafa and Sadiq Bey. They're not from a more remote era, right? They're, they're, they're at the same time as Gordon, you know, Khartoum or, or these other people. And so how do we understand a world where all of these different um, kinds of relationships and, and intimacies and very fucked up power dynamics are playing out and try to analyze them together? Um, and not and assume I, that one one is Western and one is not, you know, but kind of really let them all breathe is really difficult, but really, really interesting. That I think is a really great question um, to reflect on and, and a really great question to end on. Um, so I want to thank you so much for joining us. I think we covered the bad question pretty conclusively and most of the conversation was at the was about the gay question so i won't um i won't belabor the point by asking you to define bad or not and gay or not um i will ask if people want to find out more about you and your work um where can they where can they turn to uh you can find me on twitter at arthur sref and on my faculty website on the university of cambridge that's where most great we will surely link to both of those in the show notes so if you're listening to this you can just click underneath um, as always you can find uh the uh show at bad gays pod on twitter and instagram you can find me at ben writes things on twitter and uh, you can go to badgazepod.com for information about our Patreon um, and for information about our book and some upcoming book events we have. Um, and stay tuned for a season coming this fall from Hugh and I. Thanks so much for joining us, Arthur. Thank you. Awesome. Bye. Bad gay. 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 Bad g